9. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice, the wicked, are ensnared by the works of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Struck them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. 
you consider it to take it in hand, the victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen in their, to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Father, we do thank you that your word actually gives us words to mouth our perplexities and our concerns. We thank you that um, we can learn from that, Lord, and we pray that we may do so. Help us to think through and hear and agree and maybe disagree. So yes, Lord, inform our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies that we may indeed enjoy fellowship with you and with one another. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. We are doing a bit of the Psalms as we've been doing for the holiday period. And uh, so as I was working through Psalm 9, I um, realized that maybe we should do Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together. So if you just look at the Psalm in front of you, you will note that uh, there should be a footnote. So there are some debate about whether Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 was one Psalm at one stage. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into that whole issue. I don't think it's necessary for us to solve that problem. Uh, but the two Psalms are very closely related to one another. Um, unfortunately, one can't see that so clearly in our translations. Uh, and it's not because the translators are bad. It's just because you can't translate it. It's impossible to translate it because it's following uh, a certain structure uh, based on the Hebrew alphabet. But um, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about that. So I'm just going to put the two Psalms together because in one sense they deal with the same theme, although in a slightly different way. Um, and it really is all about, right at the top of your outline, um, it basically says uh, it all in one sentence. The Psalms are a collection of the realities of what it means to have faith in God. And it covers every conceivable possible emotional situation that you could find yourself in. And it gives us ways and words to reflect back to God about that situation and to talk to Him about it. So the Psalms are in that sense uh, very weird because they're actually man's words to God and they become God's word to us. So we learn how to deal with life. So there are some Psalms that are incredibly dark where there's absolutely no hope whatsoever. Because sometimes that's how we experience life, isn't it? And it gives us words. What do I say to God when life doesn't make sense? Um, when my expectations, as we've said, there hasn't been met. So this morning you came here and you didn't expect to be here, is it? <laughs> life is like that. Often our expectations about life isn't met. Sometimes it goes beyond what we expected. So we are overawed and amazed. I did not expect this to happen, and so we're really happy and excited. Often, I expected something different, something better. Uh, and that's how you find out what you actually believe on a level. And your experience either confirms or goes against your experiences and your beliefs and your expectations. 
So life in that sense is, uh, I guess, not under our control and not happening at the pace and the way in which we want to go about it. And this psalm, very interestingly, is quite a, what I would call a big psalm. Look at all the different themes that run through the book of Psalms. They are all here except one. There's one aspect that is not highlighted in this and these two psalms, and that is the idea of own personal sin before God. But almost every other theme is actually captured in, uh, in these two psalms when you put them together. The reality that the world is a broken place, but it's not really reflecting on the brokenness of the world in terms of sin, um, in terms of the effect of physical pain and suffering, which we have had quite a bit of this morning already, it really is a reflection on the brokenness of mankind's role in the world, which is really funny. If you were here last week, can you remember what psalm we did last week? Psalm 8. Can you remember what psalm 8 was all about? (laughs) About how glorious God is because he has appointed man to rule. That was the theme of the psalm. Let's glorify God because God has decided that small, weak, mortal man has been appointed to rule the world on his behalf. So let's glorify God, which is weird, isn't it? This psalm actually flips it all around, comes back to what we would say more reality. How many of you, when you switch on the news and you see how rulers rule the world, worship, fall down and worship God about his glory? <laughs> That's not the kind of thing we tend to do, isn't it? We, we would much rather come to Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Because the reality is that God's great image bearers are fallen and wicked and arrogant. And people suffer greatly because of this. And that's really what this psalm is in one sense all about. So this psalm is much easier to go to your TV tonight and watch the news and then pray it. Because this psalm actually recognizes this difficulty. But the difficulty that he has is that God is God and sovereign and rules over everything, and yet there is wickedness and evil and suffering at the hands of his image bearer on other image bearers. He's not even talking about man's effect on nature. He's talking about man's effect on man, how we actually treat one another. So I often joke, make the joke, and I need to probably be more careful. I often say, you know, you say to somebody, you, you know, you, you're just like a dog, or you're a pig. You know, you, we often, when you're angry about a situation, we may put a human into the category of an animal. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I realize that's probably a bad thing for two, on two sides. One, you probably shouldn't do that because um, animals don't do the evil that humans do. So that's an insult to the animal. <laughs> Yet on the other side, we have been made to rule... And isn't it terrible that we actually rule so evilly? So we are higher than animals, and yet we are lower, in one sense, than animals. Because animals don't do what humans do. Animals don't plan evil. Animals don't rejoice in evil. And the psalm is saying, I'm living in a world where that is all around me. And so he's battling. He is perplexed because God is God and we know what is right and wrong and why is God not doing anything? And on the other hand, he knows God is God and rules everything and will judge. So he's not in despair. 
But he's got in this funny situation, isn't it? I'm perplexed. But I'm not going to give up. Because I believe in God. And I believe that God will rule. And that's really what he captures in this entire psalm. So I'm going to try and run you just very quickly through the structure. This is a psalm we need to go and read. And read the whole thing. And try and keep it together. So let's look there. Structure and meaning. Now, it's a broken, what we call, alphabetical poem. So if you read it in the Hebrew language, what you'll find is that every second line starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But not quite. Which is not interesting. So there are some of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that is missing when you put these two psalms together. The first psalm follows the alphabet almost, leaves out one letter. The second psalm, Psalm 10, actually deteriorates more. There are more letters missing from the alphabet. But it ends with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have what we would call a broken alphabetical poem, which is quite interesting. So in poetry, you can do things that you can't do in another language. In poetry, the structure actually affects the meaning. And he's saying, one of the things that humans have is humans have the ability to think and reason and communicate. So the alphabet stands for man's rule as one who can think and reason and argue and work things out. And so when the alphabet is fully kind of represented, this is the order and the goodness of life under man's rule. But here, it's a broken poem. So it is telling us there is structure that can be seen, but it's a broken structure. And the one who is breaking the structure of life is the human that has been given the ability to reason and think and argue. Isn't that interesting? So when you read the psalm, even if you don't understand the psalm, if you read the structure of the psalm, it tells you there is order and it's good and God has created it and it should be, but it's not quite. I take it that's probably your experience of life, isn't it? Life is good and there's structure and there isn't. And it's like this. And that's really where he is caught up. He's caught up in that reality. And he looks at this world and he speaks about it. And he says, I can see the wonder of life. And I can see that man, who should be the wonder of life, is the creator of the brokenness of that life. And he's saying, God, get involved. Don't stand far off. I know you have been involved, and that's really... So if you look at the second part, when I've kind of put the, the outline Psalm 9 and 10, you will notice that I've tried to kind of structure it. There are statements of faith and praise, and then there are pleas. And they kind of oscillate. So in verses 1 to 12, he's praising God, and he is stating God's kind of credentials in the past, and God's nature, and therefore he calls on people to worship him. And then in verses 13 and 14, he pleads. Since this is true, help me. Look at my enemies are coming for me. Then again, he goes back and he praises God and he tells us that God is the one in charge. And then he pleads again. Arise, O Lord, and do something. Get involved. Then he goes back to a lament, actually, interestingly. The longest section is the lament from chapter uh, Psalm 10, verses 3 to verse 11. He laments about the wickedness of the wicked. And then he pleads again. God, get involved, arise. And then he ends it again with a praise and a statement 
of certainty. So you can see how he oscillates. He oscillates between the fact that he believes and what he sees and experiences is in conflict with that. But he never loses hope. So he calls on God to get involved. And then he thanks God again for God's character and nature. And then he pleads again because it's not like that. And so he's in despair. He's, he's perplexed, but he's not in despair. And he works his whole thing through trying to help us to see. So he is the Messiah. So if you go, interestingly, when you read about this, this is one of those really Yanir. You know, this is one of my favorite statements. You know, everything is Yanir. Yes, no. So if you read the psalm, it starts out in verses 1 and 2 full of praise. So when the scholars are trying to say, what is this? Is this a praise psalm or is this a lament psalm? And the answer is, Yanir. So just look at the superscription at the top of the psalm. For the music director, to the tune of the death of a son, a psalm of David. So what do you think is the tune at a funeral of a child? <laughs> I take it. It's somber, isn't it? It's, it's sad. It is. What? What is the number one thing when we talk about in a child... A parent should never bury its own children. Give me another word for it. How do we describe that thing? It ought not to be. It is unnatural. That's how we talk about it, isn't it? And there's a sense in which this psalm, life is unnatural. It's not supposed to be like this. I know it ought not to be like this. And the whole psalm reflects this oscillation between it. And it actually helps us to find words. Confident in God. Because God is the one who has brought Israel into being. And so when you read these sections, he's talking about big picture stuff. God has brought Israel into being. God has saved Israel from Egypt. God has brought Israel into the promised land. God has anointed me as king. So it's a psalm of David. He's writing as the Messiah. David brought everything together. He brought, he, he captured Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem the central city. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Everything kind of happened there. Everything was glorious. But it wasn't glorious. God gave him victory over his enemies. And yet there were, there were still enemies. That confronted him from both outside and Enemies from the nations, as you read the psalm, but also enemies from inside. <coughs> Even God's own people were opposing him and were living lives that were unright, just and wrong. And so you can see in this psalm, as he goes through this thing, I'm sure you, you feel like, often like that too. Don't you stand and say, God, if you are God, if you are, look at verse 7. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and, just, uh, and judges the people with equity. That's God's nature. That's God's being. That's God's purposes. And so, verse 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes. From an experiential point of view, it is true sometimes. But look at verse 1 of Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of 
trouble. You've had that experience too? I think it's C.S. Lewis who says when he's a, his, his wife died, uh, he was so overwhelmed that he ran to God and he knocked on the door and then God slammed the door in his face and bolted it doubly from the inside. That was his experience. There was nothing. God wasn't available. Months. How do you work that through? That's what the psalmist wants us to do. What weighs the heaviest in the end of the day? Is it your experience or your understanding of how God has revealed himself? Where do you put the weight in the end of the day? Because you have that reality. Both of them. Oh, you're, a, you're, you're there in times of trouble. Where are you in times of trouble? And yet, when you look at the structure of the psalm, he starts out both praising God and he ends up praising God. But he doesn't do it as if the rest of life is simple and straightforward and goes through it with a smile on his face and everything is hunky-dory. He is wrestling. He is perplexed because on the one hand, God is righteous and God judges and he has judged. And on the other hand, now in this peculiar situation, we're not exactly sure what it is. He feels like God is not doing what God is supposed to do. And where are you? And so he wants to wake God up. Isn't it interesting? Arise, O God. Wake up. Don't you see? Don't you understand? When are you going to act? When are you going to do something? When are you going to change the situation? When are you going to intervene? When are you going to make life good? When are you going to do your justice and your righteousness? Because that is who you are. You see, he's calling on God because he knows that is what God is like. What he doesn't understand is why is God not doing something right now? Why are you not sorting it out right now? And I take it that's an experience that you may probably have yourself. The intensity of it probably varies. In this psalm, he captures this weird thing. He's just glorified God that God made man to rule. Now he has to pray to the one who made man to rule to come and judge the ruler that he's made. Because of the wickedness and the arrogance. And you see that again. When God is not God, then man treats other image bearers as less. Only as commodities. So it's a great description, isn't it? In verses 3 to verse 11, about the worship that man has. He uses people to get whatever he wants. In any way conceivable. When God is not there, he's speaking on their behalf. This is what they must think because this is how they behave. They don't know God. They don't care. They think they will never be caught out because the way they treat other human beings. And then he says, Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand. Come on. Get involved. Get stuck in, Lord. How long? We actually had the question of how long in Psalm 6 and Psalm 7 as well. How long, Lord? How long are you going to not be yourself? Because be yourself. Because when you are yourself, then life will be good. Why do you actually, in that sense, tolerate all this wrong? Good question, isn't it? The question you've got in your mind, your heart. So as the Messiah, who has been appointed to rule over God's people, he is praying this because he, in his capacity as the ruler of God's people, cannot execute and do exactly what he should be doing 
because of his enemy. And yet he runs to God and does not take things into his own hands. He cries out to God, you get involved. You decide how you're going to solve this whole issue. So can you see how this thing works? He's been appointed. He lives in this world that is in one sense upside down. There's enough good in it. And yet there's enough wickedness for mankind. And yet God is the eternal one. And God has judged. And God isn't doing anything right now. Won't you come and do something? Won't you act? And I take it in that sense. We can relate to that, isn't it? Do we mourn and do we pray for judgment? It's uncomfortable when you start thinking about it, do it. Lord, come and judge this world in justice and in righteousness and in equity. And yet, if you have any sense of understanding of life, that would be a cry that will come from your heart. You will want that to happen, and yet you will be probably a little bit uncomfortable with praying that. Because maybe you will also be judged. But that's the one thing that actually you don't find in this psalm. There's no self-reflection by David on the fact that he needs forgiveness. He is asking God to judge and intervene on behalf of his people and on behalf of God's own holy name. So when you read the psalm, I take it that's exactly... We actually find ourselves often in situations like that where we long for God to get involved, to come and just sort it out. Maybe just in this instance. And it's good for you to see that you can ask God that, isn't it? Good to know that I can pray this. God, come. Get involved. Help me. I will praise you and I want to praise you and help me to praise you because things are upside down. Help me to hold on to you. And what I find fascinating and wonderful is that this is not the only part of God's word that we have. The story obviously runs on until we come to the greater and the truth a Messiah, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't cry out to God to judge? Because he has come to be judged. He has come to establish righteousness and justice by him himself taking upon him our sin. So the way in which he brings about justice and righteousness was by him himself taking the penalty for sin, which David obviously couldn't do, and we can't do it. And that's why Jesus, in that sense, falls into a category all by himself. He fulfills both sides of the psalm. There is the Messianic king who prays to God for his justice and righteousness, and there is God who is just and righteous. And in Christ Jesus, you find both of those things fulfilled in himself. So no wonder, just trying to pick up there. So look at your outline there. I've just given you three areas. God's actions and God's nature and God's character, which we've seen in the psalm, and we haven't even touched on half of it, how God actually lives. You see that in Jesus Christ himself. So no wonder Jesus goes around teaching, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who do not take things into their own hands. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. Jesus was a man of tears. Jesus was a man who did not take things into his own hands. He did not retaliate when he was wronged. 
He did not execute judgment. He actually took it upon himself. He is the one who comes as the true human. Jesus was poor in spirit. I can do nothing by myself. I only do as the Father tells me to do. Jesus was the one who fulfills every single one of the statements that he says that is how you should live. And then his actions goes further than that. Not only did he live a righteous life, he acted. Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he himself then became the sin offering on the cross for our sins so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. So here's the thing that's so complicated. In Jesus Christ, all the psalms and all the prayers and all the longings actually gets fulfilled in one person. He actually lives exactly as God has always required anyone to live. And then he goes and becomes the sacrifice that sets each one of us free from our not being righteous as God is. He takes it upon himself so that we may be forgiven. And then he is resurrected into eternal life. And so when you read Psalm 9, just want to quickly pick up on one or two things. One of the frustrating things about life is that not only is life unjust, but things tend to perish and fade and spoil. Have you ever noticed some pictures of you 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago <laughs> compared to where you are now? <laughs> the whole reality of perishing and fading and spoiling. Isn't that incredibly sad? And when you read this psalm, there's a lot of that language that comes through. They won't perish, but the wicked will perish. The humble will not perish. They will live. Mere mortals is not going to survive. So when we deal with life's injustices, we have to find a solution not only to sin, but to death and decay and spoiling and fading. And there's no one that actually has been able to do that except the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll take it on myself and then I will overcome it. I'm not running from it. I'm entering into it. And in that way, he brings about God's great kingdom. And that's why we read in the New Testament, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, we are now involved in an eternal salvation that can never spoil, fade, or perish. The whole prayer in this whole section. So look at verse 19 of Psalm 9. Arise, O Lord, and do not let mortals, do not let mere man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only mortal. And then again, at the end of Psalm 10, almost says exactly the same thing. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. One of the realities of life is death. Jesus Christ has come and has taken everything upon himself, our sin and our death, so that he may actually bring about the righteous judgment of God and bring about an eternal home. And so as we look to him, we see hope. When we look around us, we see enough structure to know there should be structure, 
but enough chaos to know that it is chaos. It shouldn't be like this. The only place where we see life is in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. That's what we saw last week when we did Psalm 8. That Christ is the one who's come to conquer everything. That everything is under His feet, even though we can't see that now, but we can see Him. That's where we find our hope, isn't it? Our hope that when He comes again, He will bring about, in our experience, the fullness of who and what He is and what He has experienced on our behalf. That's where our confidence lies. And yet when we look around ourselves, we're going to fight, but we are perplexed. But we're not in despair. Because we know and we believe that God who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us with Him and seat us with Him in God's eternal place. Where there will be no pain, no suffering, no tears. But that's not the only thing that won't be there. When you read in Revelation You'll find this incredible description. There will be no one who is a coward in heaven. No cowardly. No vile. No evil. No murderous. No adulterous. No sexually immoral. They won't be there either. But it will be then. And now we have the confidence that Jesus Christ has conquered all of life and it's given us hope. And so, we catch ourselves. So when you look to yourself, or you look to other people, you will see glory and wonder and amazement and brokenness and sadness and deterioration and decay and death. When you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where you will see that God has fulfilled the prayer of Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal one who reigns eternally. He is the one who has been here and done it. As we would say, he has the t-shirt and the DVD. He's done it. So where you look, that's what will affect how you live, isn't it? And we're not looking at we not stop looking at the world, but that's not where our focus and our belief is. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at this world and we look along this world and we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has fulfilled every single thing and in whom God has established righteousness. And that is our hope and that's the message we carry out. And so now we live our lives, that last little paragraph, we live like that now. We are aware that outside of Christ, there is the wonder of the structure of how it should be, but it's never quite like that. But we find in Christ Jesus the hope that He has conquered everything. And so now we are preparing ourselves. We are enjoying Him and we pursue Him as we hold Him out to the world. And that's what we're going to do right now. We are going to declare, weirdly enough, His death until He comes again. That's what we're going to do. The greatest reality has been conquered. Death has been conquered, but only in Christ, because we can't see it. But we can see Him. So let's do that together. And let's ask God to help us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word helps us 
to find the words. When we look at life, life is like this. Life is amazing. We know there ought to be good structure. And we know that human beings can and has done incredible, wonderful things. And yet, Lord, we are reminded on a daily basis that your rulers has actually become the problem. We thank you, therefore, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have affirmed every single thing that you have promised and given us. And you've come to do it on our behalf. You've come to save us so that we may actually enjoy the reality that we experience at times in this world. And yet, Lord, we are so aware of its brokenness and of the wickedness of mankind and of the evil and of the consequences of that. And so, Lord, we look at the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has indeed overcome everything and established everything. We thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to help us to wrestle this through until our hearts rejoice in him, until our trust is in him, and that our trust may grow to the point where we are keen to ourselves enact the righteousness and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the truthfulness and the humility and the meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who has conquered everything. So Lord, make us people who testify to the wonder of life. Make us people who testify to the brokenness and sadness of God's rulers. And make us people who realize that in Christ Jesus all of that has been changed and conquered. We thank you for your salvation. We pray that we may grow in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.